We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Dear listener, welcome back to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. This is episode 117, and something a little bit different this time. Um, Normally, um, by Sunday night, I've got together a list of articles, and I send them over to Scott, and at that point, we pretty much know what we're going to talk about when we record on a Wednesday night. But on this occasion, got to Sunday night, and I wasn't that inspired by the articles that I'd found at that point, and... I said to Scott, look, I think this time what we'll do is cobble together some highlights of previous shows. So that's what I've done, dear listener. I've gone back a year to October 2016, episodes 65, 66, 67, taken um, bits and pieces from there and um, stitched them together. And that's what we've got. So if you've already listened to them and don't want to listen again, then switch off now because it's repeats and we'll see you next week. Um, Otherwise, um, a lot of the stuff I'd even forgotten myself. So I think some of the ideas, um, you know, well, I've gotten rid of the the topics that were sort of really only relevant to the day and tried to keep ones that have got a bit of longevity to them. So uh, hopefully you'll enjoy this little montage of bits and pieces and of course, by Monday night, I had a whole list of topics on the agenda and I kind of almost regretted my decision because, of course, Tony Abbott came out saying things about climate change and, and um, oh, what was it, the, uh, a private school started gaming the system and claiming lots of disabled students and Sydney Anglican gave a million dollars to the No campaign. So we ended up having enough for a proper podcast anyway, but... Um, uh, anyway, we've made this decision. I've been meaning to do it for a while and uh, all of the podcasts we've done are there in the archives on the website. So if you want to, you can always go there and um, find some good stuff. Okay, sit back and relax. We start with some highlights from episode uh, 65. Oh, and there's a guy in uh, San Jose, California, uh, Ordained priest for 22 years. Uh, In the past 10 years, he has performed 50 to 60 exorcisms. He says, I'm a full pastor, and this is a very intense ministry. Almost every free night that I have is taken up with exorcisms. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, for goodness sake. So how how long does an exorcism take? I mean, it's... um, If he's getting through 50 to 60 in 10 years, that's five or six a month well not to be underestimated how difficult it is scott yeah mm. so uh so there we go satanical temple could have a free ride because all the exorcists are pretty busy at the moment <laughs> now just to um just to sort of spread the love here i thought i'd quickly look up what islam had to say on satan scott and uh, mm-hmm. uh from um from the Hadith, this one, um, on Satan, and this would be from um, Sahih Muslim, would be the reference, MO235044, for those who are interested and want to look it up, uh, said Muhammad, 
If someone drops food from his mouth, he should quickly pick it up, brush off any dirt, eat it, and never leave any for Satan. That's the advice from Satan. And, uh, from s- Muhammad, isn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah. Someone mentioned to Muhammad a man that slept long after sunrise. Muhammad said, Satan has urinated in that man's ears. Uh, and this one (laughs) and this one uh, Muhammad said when a person is born Satan touches him with two fingers Jesus Mary's son was the exception Satan tried to touch him but missed and touched the placenta instead (laughs) Uh, and finally just because it's totally unrelated but I was just flicking through the book at the time and I had a little note on it um, Scott just to work out whether you reach, you've got the criteria to be a, uh, a prophet, um, Muhammad said, There are five things that prophets have in common circumcision, shaved pubic hair, plucked armpits, a closely trimmed moustache, and trimmed fingernails. <laughs> I'm, I'm, good. I'm good for two out of five. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying which ones. <laughs> yeah, I got trim nails, but that's about it. So, <laughs> so that's Satan. Everyday Western life, still um, fascinated with Satan. We then got onto a discussion about uh, abortion and embryos and medical research. Yeah, but you know, it's um, you read further on and it says the measure would make it illegal to freeze embryos which proponents say are human beings from the moment of fertilization mm. it would also only allow women to fertilize one egg at a time mm. so they've got this um <clears throat> it's the whole catholic agenda isn't it they've got this uh uh opposition to oh, what's the word i'm groping for to uh fertility treatments and that sort of stuff mm. And then they've wrapped it all up there and, and doing away with abortion also. I find it incredible. Um, you know. I'll, I'll, I'll t- can I mention a group that will surprise you who are more progressive on this sort of thing than the Catholic Church? Um, ISIS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As devout followers of Islam, uh, the position of Islam on embryos is quite interesting, Scott. Mm. Have you heard what it is before? I have heard that uh, they don't believe that the soul inhabits the life form until it's actually born. Close. So, yeah, okay. 120 days, roughly. Right. Ac- according okay. to Islamic doctrine. So mm-hmm. pretty much they consider that uh, a fetus is not a human being until about 120 days. So, so um I was listening to it. Yeah. So, you know, technically in Islam or, you know, an ISIS follower could be conducting embryonic research. They wouldn't have a problem with that. Um, Just quoting, this is from an article, um, just quoting the Hadith, um, again, from Bukhari, um, number 3036. Those of you at home looking up your own personal Hadith can check this out. Um, (laughs) Each one of you is constituted in the womb of the mother for 40 days, and then he becomes a clot of thick blood for a similar period, and then a piece of flesh for a similar period. Then Allah sends an angel who is ordered to write four things. 
He is ordered to write down his deeds, his livelihood, his date of death, and whether he will be blessed or wretched in religion. Then the soul is breathed into him. At that point, you're a human being. But there you go. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's interesting that the that it's all preordained, isn't it? That, uh, that the That's what they certainly... That's certainly what they teach you anyway in the religions is that it's preordained. Mm. You, know, you know, what you are and that sort of stuff is all preordained. Mm. The angel is Which gonna, I find bizarre. Mm. The angel is going to write down your deeds, your livelihood, your date of death, and whether you'll be blessed or wretched in religion. So mm. it's all mapped out in front of you. So much for choice. Mm. Scott, interesting news in the last week is the appearance of scary clowns. Yes. <laughs> Have you got a clown phobia at all, Scott? No, I don't have a clown phobia, did you, no. Did you ever read that book by Stephen King with Pennywise the Clown? I did read it many years ago. Right. But it, 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 didn't, um, it didn't make me scared or anything like didn't, that. Didn't speak you yeah. out. I am uncomfortable with scary clowns. They are Is that right? awful <laughs> looking things. But, you know, they're showing video footage of, of people around the world who are, um, you know... People would just be a lot of them on dash cam, so you know, the car's yeah. driving along and suddenly there's a guy walking towards you in the street with a clown outfit. And mm. the interesting thing is, Scott, in all of them, I reckon, is because their face is covered either with so much paint or with an actual mask, that you can't read the expressions on the clown's face. Like you you don't know whether the person underneath that mask is joking or serious you really have no idea and this is it just fundamentally demonstrates the importance of being able to see somebody's face so you can identify whether they're friend or foe or whether they are something else and so it's not um, it's not irrelevant and minor for Western society to say to women wearing the niqab or the um, or the burqa, mm. it's important to see your face. I need to, you know you you're probably a woman, you may not be, and I need mm. to know what's going on under that um, in your face as to whether you're friend or foe. It's how people communicate, and and you can be very uneasy not knowing what's going on on somebody's face. You don't know what to expect so particularly when they're holding a chainsaw or a meat cleaver or something as, <laughs> as some of the clowns are but some of them aren't if they're just like really still and just it feels menacing when you can't see their face so it's a legitimate mm. complaint i think this is where i draw the line anyway if you want to wear the he if you want to wear the hijab i will argue against you but not stop your right to wear it but in relation to the niqab and the and the burqa i'd say no I think as a society we have the right to say you know, you're not wearing that that's that's going to damage our society too much for that reason I yeah I mean um, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with drawing the line in what people can and can't wear mm. but I do understand your point and I do think that the niqab and the burqa and that sort of stuff they are so confronting to mm. people from the west mm. that um I do think that they have they have gone too far with those and that 
even just inside a bank, for God's sake, you know, I, I find that ridiculous that you've that banks and that sort of stuff they make you remove your bicycle, your bike helmet, and that sort of stuff before you go in. But yeah. if you're wearing the cab, you know, it, it, it's an entirely different set of circumstances. You, you've got to allow people to wear whatever they want. So that's yeah, that's that's where I sort of draw the line at it. It's a little bit um, is a little bit confronting. But I do think that um, I do think I have to agree with you there that uh, you know you, you've got to you've got to be able to see people's faces and determine whether or not they're friend or foe. Mm. Mm. Um, just on that topic, I just saw before. <laughs> um, apparently, in the USA, Ronald McDonald has had to cancel events. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, out of, really, out of respect for community at the moment. The, uh, in the USA, they're cancelling Ronald McDonald events. <laughs> because people are so petrified of clowns. Eh? That's right, yeah. And uh, so, so there you go. It's, uh, well, that's, uh, that's something different, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're the Hamburglar, you could probably still run around, but, you know, Ronald, <laughs> Ronald McDonald can't. Because <laughs> the Hamburglar at the moment is less menacing. Yeah, apparently so, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Ah, Scott, um, I've been thinking, well, you know, Donald Trump and uh, the recent (laughs) debate. I mean, honestly, that, I really thought that his campaign would just come to a screeching halt when that um, tape recording of him was released. Yes. Saying what he said. Yes. I thought to myself, this has got to be the end. You know, Mm. it's... It's ridiculous that the uh, the Republican leader of the House, whatever you call him, in, uh, the the Speaker of the House mm-hmm. in the United States, has distanced himself from him. Everyone's distancing themselves from him, and now they're talking about um, all of the battleground states just going blue. Now mm-hmm. it's it's incredible that. Um, you know, I, I, I suppose they've got no choice but to just stick with him, but. You can understand why the House Republicans and the Senators are campaigning themselves and they're mm. trying to keep away from Donald Trump. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, I did cut you off, sorry. <laughs> two, okay, I'm, 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 uh, I think I've got two explanations for his longevity <laughs> in this campaign. So, so one, two, is, okay. one is identity politics. So... People don't care what you say, provided they just think you're part of their group. So as long as you're part of their group, they'll just back you and whatever you say doesn't really matter. So so there's the identity yeah, politics. True. And the second one is, Scott, um, uh, uh, lexicographic preferences is the other explanation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Dear listener... Lexicographic I will need an explanation pref- of what a lexicographic preference yeah. is. <laughs> lexicographic preferences. Uh, this, uh, the terminology actually refers to the compilation of dictionaries and is meant to invoke the fact that a dictionary is organised alphabetically with infinite attention to the first letter of each word and only in the event of ties with attention to the second letter of each word. So, applying that to um, politics and and uh, Donald Trump, it really comes down to single-issue voters. 
so you will have people who, for example, are um, a pro-life, anti-abortion, and for them, that issue is by far the only issue that they're interested in. Like, they're completely dominated psychologically by that issue, and they will just go for the candidate who they think will best promote what they view on that issue. And it doesn't matter what any of their other policies are, any of the other... uh, Like, you know, most people you would think there might be a basket of ideas and you would have weightings of different ideas and and examine whether people are in favour of... how strongly they are in favour your candidate is of a particular aspect or policy. But for a lot of people, it's single issue. And mm. if they perceive that Donald Trump is the man for their single issue, then they honestly don't care about the rest. So, mm. for and I mean, something like the sort of pro-life movement, we know how fanatical they are, and they have the view that there'll be some Supreme Court uh, nominations up for grabs in the course of the next presidency, and they only need to get um, uh, a couple... Um, pro-life judges in and they'll be able to overturn Roe vs Wade so for that reason they'll just stick with they'll stick with Donald Trump it really wouldn't matter what he said unless he said he's no longer pro-life then that's a deal breaker but so there's so there's uh, so there's the pro-life they one would prob- they would probably like in the pro-life example they would end up not voting uh because they're he, not going to vote for Hillary because he, she is definitely correct. pro-choice. Yeah. yeah. Or yes, yes. Or or they might you're vote right. for a third candidate. Yeah. Mm. You're right. They probably wouldn't vote. So, mm. um, so with Donald Trump, you've got uh, you've got a pro-life issue, um, and you've also got. I mean, if anyone's silly enough to think that he's going to restore jobs for working-class Americans, that might be one. But. <laughs> The, the other obvious um, single issue one would be... Immigration. Correct. Yeah. Mm. So if you really felt strongly about immigration, then you might well still vote for Donald Trump, irrespective of the craziness of the rest of his ideas. Yeah, that, 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 that's it. I mean, like, it, it's... Um well, there was a meme this afternoon I saw on Facebook that said, you know, calling Donald Trump a crazy is offensive to anyone that suffered with mental illness. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's, yes. a, it's, it's a... But, but I'm going to really put to you is. a proposal, Scott, why mm-hmm. you might, you, if faced with a choice, might well vote for Donald Trump as opposed to a current major world leader. Do you think, do you think this is possible? Only if my choice was between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. No, no, somebody much more, you know, full-on Western country. Yep. So, well, imagine this, Scott. Imagine a scenario. (laughs) Imagine you were in an election, and it was a presidential-style election. Yeah. And one of the candidates was Donald Trump saying, I'm not going to allow any immigration. Yet... The other candidate was Angela Merkel, and she was saying, I'm going to allow every year for the next four years the equivalent of uh, 1.2% of the population uh, of Syrian or Afghanistan migrants into the country. 
So you could you could on the one hand take the view, Scott, that you know what? Presidents come and go, the economy ticks over pretty much through its cycles. Without their intervention, yeah. Kind of let's face it, you know, with with um with houses of parliament, you know, controlled by, you know, opposition parties and minority groups and stuff, you, you often take the view, well, how much can a president really get done? And somebody like Donald Trump probably couldn't get anything done. But you might take the view that, bloody hell, at over four years, 1.2%, that's a five percent of the population will then be will then be a, a Muslim immigrants. Can my society handle that? Because that is something that is irretrievable. Like that kicks off a change in a society, which which is going to have an effect in twenty, thirty, fifty years that may not be good. And that Scott. Who would you vote for in that situation, assuming all the things I've just said? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, I'll let you think about it. So, dear listener... I'd probably end up voting for the bastard, actually. I'd probably end up voting for Trump. Y- yeah. y- I mean, Islam is an extremely dangerous ideology. It's a political ideology, and yeah. when the numbers get to a significant enough level, the pressure is ramped up to make changes to laws to accommodate uh, the Islamic faith. And it's a very, very dangerous. That would be a, a, a such a big sociological change that you could not reverse. It's done and dusted. You have made a significant change to your society. I just think... Um, there you go. I mean, we say it's crazy that the Donald has uh, lasted as long as he has, but when you start tossing ideas around like this, it's... Um, there you it go. is conceivable. It is conceivable, isn't it? If you, if yeah. you had one candidate that was saying 1.2% of the population every year, yeah. then it really would get out of hand. Yeah. yeah. So uh, in Germany, there's 80 million people, and uh, they let in a million last year. Uh, for somewhere like Australia with 25 million, that would be 312,000 every year. So, um, so yeah. there you go. So that's uh, an interesting sort of way of looking at it, dear listener. So we've learned about lexicographic preferences being sort of single issue, most important, and uh, and really Angela Merkel. Hmm. Mm. On the topic of democracy. I really like this article as well. This is a thought-provoking one. Uh, it's about a book. So there's a guy called George Monbiot, M-O-N-B-I-O-T, and he has done a little book review about a book that was looking at um, democracy. And um, he's, uh, you know, the sort of thesis of the book is, is what if democracy doesn't work? And uh, he's talking about, you know... Donald Trump's ability to shake off almost any scandal. And then in the Philippines, we've got Rodrigo Duterte, who gleefully compares himself to Hitler. And, you know, there's all sorts of other instances around the world where you can say democracy doesn't seem to be working. 
and uh, yeah, it's true. It, it's true. There has been some extremists that have got up, but mm. uh, so in this book they have uh, they talk about a folk theory of democracy, where the idea that citizens make coherent and intelligible policy decisions on which governments. Uh, uh, and he's saying it bears no r- relationship to how it really works or could ever work. He says, um, voters can't possibly live up to these expectations. Many are too busy with jobs and families and troubles of their own. Uh, when do we have time off? Not many of us choose... When we do have time off, not many of us choose to spend it sifting competing claims about the fiscal implications of quantitative easing. Even when we do, we don't behave as the theory suggests. So this would be true, Scott. Like, people don't have time. You and I are, in oh, your words, we crazy. Are the, we we're, we're, are the freaks. We, we, we are, are the freaks. We're the outliers. Yeah, yeah we for are. sure. But most people, like, but, you can talk to, I, you know, a recent trip up to Cairns, different friends of my wife, conversation would turn to different things. And, you know, I might even mention submarines and say, hey, what do you reckon that submarine decision? They go, I don't know. Can, mm. But just generally, people don't have time. These are well-educated, well-meaning citizens who are... But people don't have time. So that's true. Uh, the people that's don't have the time. Listen to, they should get their news distilled through the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. That, that, is, what we, <laughs> that is what we're trying to do, yes. Um, so the idea of rational choice happening by the electorate uh, isn't happening. Um, he says that... Uh, in their research, these authors have found most people possess almost no useful information about policies and their implications. They have little desire to improve their state of knowledge and have a deep aversion to political disagreement. Um, we base our political decisions on who we are rather than what we think. This is, again, a bit of that identity politics stuff, but... Um, we have a deep aversion to political disagreement. This is true as well, particularly in Australia, I think, Scott. Like, my daughter is scared witless that when I go down to her place at Christmas and meet her boyfriend's family, that I'll just start... <laughs> I'll just start <laughs> ranting on about religion. <laughs> the, fact, the fact that they're Lebanese will be sorely tempting to me... <laughs> Relaxed, dear listener, Lebanese Christian at least, but um, but that you know I'm well. I told her, don't worry, you know I don't necessarily have to talk religion at all times, but I tell you what, I'm going to give it a good crack while I'm there because that'll be fascinating. <laughs> but, but she she like many others has a deep aversion to political disagreement. Um, so. Uh, in other words, we act politically not as individual rational beings, but as members of social groups expressing a social identity. We seek out political parties that seem to correspond best to our culture with little regard to whether their policies support our interests. You know, shifts occasionally happen. New parties might position themselves as better guardians of a particular cultural identity. So if that's true, Scott, we as a secular party need to be encouraging people to join us because as an identity issue of identifying with us as a group and it really wouldn't matter what to some extent crackpot policies we might have you know lurking in our website if it's just a a, people with limited time it's about creating an identity and 
um, that people could want to be part of. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I mean, it's... um, Yeah, it's... uh, I would like to think that we've got a more of our mind on the policy rather than uh, our Mm. identity. Mm. However, I think you're probably right. Mm. You've got to create... uh, We have to create a... an cultural identity. A, yes. Yes. Mm. Or, or an identity of something that people can identify with and be part of a group as much as that's a good idea and that's a good idea and that's a shit idea. It's more like, actually, that's a really... That's a group I can work with. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, also says that uh, we are suckers for language. When surveys asked Americans... Um, well, they asked them two questions. Um whether the federal government was spending too little on assistance for the poor, and they also asked them whether the government was spending too little on welfare. Basically the same thing. But when it came to the government spending too little on assistance for the poor, 65% agreed. But when it was about, you know, do you agree that the government is spending too little on welfare, only 25% agreed. It was just a matter of language. Exactly, uh, and that is um, that is one of the really that that's really just points to you, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. Got to keep it simple, and you yeah. know, in the Gulf, in relation to the nineteen ninety one Gulf War, uh, they asked again Americans uh, whether they were willing for America to use military force, and they also asked them whether they were willing to go to war, mm. and. Uh, Military force sounded much nicer, comparatively, and two-thirds were happy with that, uh, but less than a third were willing to go to war, just based on the language. Mm. Um, Now, what it uh, comes to here is you would think the obvious answer is better information and civic education. Makes sense. But this doesn't work either, according to these authors. I really like this next bit. So um, they asked uh, moderately informed Republicans were more inclined than Republicans with the least information to believe that Bill Clinton oversaw an increase in the budget deficit. Uh, In fact, it declined massively. Okay, so you've got, let's call them educated Republicans versus non-educated Republicans, and the educated ones were more likely to believe that Clinton was running um, deficits when instead he was running surpluses. Yeah. So the question is, well, how how could that be? Why would the why would the more educated ones be getting that wrong? And the answer was because unlike the worst informed, the better informed ones knew that Clinton was a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> and just made the assumption then but he was running deficits. <laughs> deficits, yeah. Uh, the tiny number of people with a very high level of political information tend to use it not to challenge their own opinions, but to rationalise them. So um, so there we go. Even uh, lots of good ideas in that book. Very American-centred, and the uh, examples are a little bit old, but some interesting thoughts on democracy. We then moved on to a discussion about government funding of private schools the uh the people in charge of or in favor of the government providing f- 
funds for private school say that, well, private school parents pay their taxes and so if they want to pay a bit extra towards their school, then they should be able to. So they should be able to, you know, uh, because they pay taxes, there should be government money and if they want to pay extra because they love their children so much, then they should be able to. But it doesn't quite work out that way because, I mean... An analogy would be that, um, you know, we've got a, uh, a public transport system, you know, buses. And if a group of people said, you know what, we want our own private bus, just like a fancy one, and we would like the government money, you know, that it costs for an average bus, and then we'll pay the extra for a nice bus. That's not how an efficient system works. Um, no. Uh, it, what people have to realise is this funding of private schools um, only started in the Whitlam era it's you know prior to that with the, it's, it started just, with Menzies just with Menzies prior era. yes yeah. just prior to Whitlam Menzies in a very minor way Goff in a, uh, a more specific way and then got completely out of control with uh, John Howard where he just took it yes. to another level and hmm. Uh, historically, people just don't understand that prior to that time, for most of our history, the government was not providing money for private schools. Um, no, they weren't. And, in fact, overseas, it's extremely rare to provide money for private schools, and you would never do it where you just provide money and let them do whatever they like with the money. Like, if they do get it, it's certainly tied to um, certain things. So we're completely out of whack with our own history and with the rest of the world, and they're not... You know, the other thing is uh, they're not saving the community money by providing their own contribution to school fees because the private schools reject or don't even get applications from the the needy, the disadvantaged, the people who need uh, extra help, or and also they're not in remote areas. So uh, it's a lot easier to... Um, and a lot cheaper to educate children if you're just going to take the easy ones in metropolitan areas and ignore the difficult ones in remote areas. So mm. uh, they're actually just taking the easy stuff and leaving the hard stuff for the public sector. Um, and, Scott, it's just the division that these schools create. Like our whole immigration problem where we're saying we're worried about you know, Muslims coming into Australia and how are they going to integrate into our community? And, well, if we send them off to their own private little school in Grade 1 and keep them separate mm-hmm. from the community for 12 years, what would we be surprised? They're going to be separated from the, the sexes, they're going to be separated, all that sort of stuff yes. throughout their whole education. Yep. It's going to end up ridiculous that they'll end up uh, at 17 not ever having cross paths with the members of the opposite sex, mm. you know. Mm. There's a really interesting podcast on This American Life where it talked about forced integration in America and, uh, you know, from the heyday of sort of equal rights activism, it's it sort of disappeared where they were busing kids across oh, town. Yes, and, I remember that, yes. And putting yeah. them in different schools. But um, there was a recent case where... A, a predominantly well, it was a you know ninety nine point nine percent black school was performing so badly that it actually lost its registration and could no mm. longer um, 
operate as a school and as a result the black kids were then sent off into white schools and uh, mm. really interesting story and um, you know the reporter's upshot of the whole thing is that uh, when you put the disadvantaged into uh, those sorts of mainstream white schools then it actually helps them to catch up education wise and it's not to the detriment of the uh, of the existing kids. It's just a win-win situation. So yeah. there's a whole host of reasons why we should not be funding private schools and we should be making it bloody difficult for private religious schools to operate. And um, and it's had a bit of attention this week, Scott. And that's one of the main platforms of the Secular Party, dear listener. If you don't like all those comments, don't vote for us. But if you think there's a spherical of <laughs> truth in there, then... Throw us a vote at the next election. It, it is ridiculous. I mean, I, I grew up all my life in private schools and that sort of stuff. And, you know, now as I look back on it and that type of thing, I think to myself, yeah, mum and dad really were wasting their money. <laughs> you know, it, it really was um, unnecessary and it didn't achieve anything or anything like that. I, I would have still ended up probably in the same place where I was if I'd gone to the local state school. Yeah, mm. yep. Um, I went to a, a very poor private Catholic school and I look at my kids who went to um, government high schools and I'm just jealous of the opportunities and education they got. So, uh, yeah. So, anyway, that's um, private schools. There was before Gonski too. It was. Mm. Mm. Um, that's right. But the, and I've told the story of the uh, high jump on the traffic island. That's how poor we were. Yeah. Yes, he did. Yes. <laughs> Ah, from the yeah. from the Australian Independent Media Network, uh, an article entitled um, "The Insidious Influence of the Church on the State." Um, yeah, that was really interesting, wasn't it? Mm, and uh, a couple of things it says. What you really need to understand is going on um, with churches and and politics is you've got to focus on the money, and then there's two aspects to the money. One is that churches are obviously getting tax-free income. And the second is that they just get a flood of public cash um, through their coffers um, as they provide faith-based delivery of public services, you know, like healthcare and and all the rest of it. Um, So the money is simultaneously enriching the uh, religious groups and it's also silencing them because... They've got a lot of money and a big business that's now reliant on getting money from the government. So their ability to be true advocates for the poor or others is actually compromised because of all the money they're taking from the government. Mm. Mm. And uh, the most interesting thing for this article was the bit about um, Cardinal Pell. So uh, this is yeah, something... Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm, that he had said back in 2004, which I'd never heard of... Um, Uh, where he weighed in on the carbon tax debate. So this is Cardinal Pell. Some of the hysteric and extreme claims about global warming are also a symptom of pagan emptiness of Western fear when confronted by the immense and basically uncontrollable forces of nature. In the past, pagans sacrificed animals and even humans in vain attempts to placate capricious and cruel gods. Today they demand a reduction in carbon dioxide emissions. 
if, if well, you didn't have enough... Is, you know, the difference is we've got 97% of climate scientists are saying that uh, carbon dioxide is bad and you've got approximately 0% of scientists who claim that uh, sacrificing anything will uh, help uh, assuage the gods, mm. you know? <laughs> Scott, yeah. I've been saying for ages we've got to get out of the Middle East... An article on John Menadou's blog saying, yes, we should. And yeah, we've got to get out. This was from Andrew Farron, a former diplomat, former senior academic in public and international law. Um, uh, interesting th- Some interesting things that he's come up with there. Um, you know, just by staying there, we're compounding all the previous errors of judgment, breaches of law... Um, But he says that um, we're involved in bombing a country uh, that is recognised as a sovereign state uh, without its invitation to do so. So we're in breach of the UN Charter with respect to acts of aggression. And in Iraq, we're there without a status of forces agreement which would provide protection for our forces should they run into trouble under Iraq law. In... uh, Indeed, the ploy adopted to avoid that has been to issue the uh, Australian Defence Force personnel with diplomatic passports, Scott. Did you know that? No, I had no idea until I read this that they've got diplomatic passports. Because we're on such shaky legal ground being there that we've all of our soldiers in Iraq have got diplomatic passports. What Mm. What are we doing there? Um... And another thing about Section 61 and about, you know, powers to actually um, send people, uh, it should have been done by the governor and council, but it's been done by the minister, and he's saying it's a breach of the constitution. But um, I like the final uh, sort of conclusion he said is... um, A line in the sand was drawn in the Middle East in 1914 as a colonial act. That line has been the cause of much conflict over a century but it is truly broken now the remaking uh, if the Middle East is a matter of the remaking of the Middle East is a matter for the tribes, the religions and the factions involved we are not part of that and shouldn't be we should get out I agree It's. Not I, yeah I mean I was um, originally in favour of the military intervention, I'm no longer I, I think that um, there's plenty of evidence that has amassed over the last little while to say that we shouldn't be there and it's only going to get worse. Yep, and us so being I there think we should get out. isn't going to help. Hmm. Uh, while I was on the John Menadue blog, I looked across to the right-hand menu and to my delight, Scott, I saw an article. And what topic do you think it could be that could possibly give me delight? Uh, submarines? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Trust the John Menadue I've not blog. read this one. No, so you haven't. Go on. Uh, that's right. I was testing you, see. Um, great piece by uh, John Stanford um, about the submarines. He's a director of Inside Economics. Uh, in a former life, he was head of the Industries Division in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. I mean, he knows a bit about how yeah. politics and works and government. Uh, um Basically, 
He's put the subs at four point six billion because we'd worked it out at four point one eight, but he's got a four point six billion figure. Calls it an eye-watering price for a conventionally powered submarine. Uh, you know, most conventionally powered ones cost less than one billion, and we're paying four point six billion for each one. Um, yeah. Yeah. He said here that uh, the proposal involves major technical challenges. Nobody has ever converted a nuclear submarine to conventional power before. Many submarine experts doubt that it can be done. The hull forms are different. The use of pump jet propulsion, uh, uh, which is a breakthrough technology in nuclear submarines, may not work in a conventionally powered one because of the lower speeds. And he's got this other thing here, um, which I hadn't heard of before. Air-independent propulsion, Scott. So if you're in a conventionally powered submarine, uh, you've got batteries in there, and you can charge those batteries, and you can swim around underwater for about five days. But then you've got a surface, and... That's a really short time frame, and of course, when you surface, you become exposed <coughs> to mm. the enemy. So, what conventionally powered submarines have is this air-independent propulsion, which allows them to propel the submarine without surfacing. And there's various types of things, but they're enclosed systems where they might have um, oxygen in. T- compressed tanks that they can use in a closed uh, system to fire up um, a motor, if you like, and and expel the uh, fumes and whatever into the water. So, um, okay. So an air, yeah, and there's various different types of these things. So when your battery's running low, you can then resort to that. And the thing is, in nuclear subs, you don't have those systems, but in a conventional sub. You really need those systems. It's completely useless without it. He says that an air-independent propulsion is sin qua none, uh, without which nothing, for an advanced um, conventionally powered sub in the 21st century. If you don't have it, you're just crazy, in your words, Scott. And Mm. the... um, the proposal for these submarines does not include uh, air-independent propulsion. Oh, you're joking. <laughs> so we're paying four times the price for a sub yep. that doesn't even have one yep. of the basics. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so it'll be surfacing every four days rather than every three weeks. And every time it bobs up, you know, there you go. It's going to be exposed to the enemy, yeah. Yeah. It's just... Uh, why are they doing this? He says one theory is that uh, it's just a way of eventually getting a nuclear version of a submarine that, you know, a couple of years down the track, we're just going to go, oh, it's too hard to do all these conversions because of these things. We'll just have to make them nuclear. And it's a way of sort of getting a nuclear sub without having to um, go through the public debate over it. And he was speaking to a senior defence official who he quotes as saying... 
If you ask someone to devise a new submarine program with the highest risk factors at every stage, you could not have done a much better job. It will almost certainly <laughs> end in tears and possibly a catastrophe. <laughs> yeah, it's starting to look like we should have bought them from the Japanese. Yep. Yeah. Bought a nice, quiet, small, conventionally powered subs. Twelve of them for about six hundred thousand each, and they could sit along the coast. Six hundred million each. Six hundred million each. Sit along the northern coastline and you know pop off any convoy of troops headed our way. And oh gee, yeah. we wouldn't be able to participate in uh, naval manoeuvres in the South China Sea. What a shame. Well. Yeah, I was listening to a uh, podcast this afternoon, and I'm not convinced we should be involved in the South China Sea. <laughs> of course we shouldn't be. We've got no business <laughs> being in the South China Sea. God. Yeah. We're not a superpower. America wouldn't no, want us there superpower. anyway. I mean, the Americans really could... The Americans could do whatever they wanted there anyway, yeah, yeah. without us. Yeah. Uh, what yeah. we could do with... Uh, the money we're going to be wasting on those submarines and they're not going to work we're going to be actually worse off because they're just not going to work they're going to be noisy they're going to be coming up and burping for air they're not going to be able yeah. to lie and wait and effectively shoot a convoy of troops coming from china or whatever we're actually yeah. going to be left undefended because we're going to have these rusting hulks in some workshop in south australia and you can yeah, see it now. Oh. South Australia's going in it with an industry. <laughs> the discussion now turns to voluntary euthanasia and assisted dying. Oh, and there's a case. I've got an article here, actually. Uh, let me find it. Um, about a, a Canadian guy yes. uh, in a Catholic hospital. Faced excruciating transfer after Catholic hospital refused assisted death request. Mm. Ian Shearer had enough of the pain and wanted a quick, peaceful end to his life marred by multiple afflictions. Vancouver's man's family said his last day alive became an excruciating ordeal after the Catholic-run hospital caring for him rebuffed his request for a doctor-assisted death, forcing him to transfer to another hospital. You know, it's... (sighs) It really is... It really is... The whole article, it goes into exactly what you've just described. Mm. He's a bloke who was following the law in Canada. He asked for a doctor-assisted death. The Catholic hospital that he was in said no. They transfer. They then arranged to transfer him only four kilometres down the road, but his pain medication was running down and that sort of stuff. He was in agony during the entire journey to the hospital where he was finally allowed to go to sleep. You know, it really is... Yes, quite sickening yeah because his pain relief had to be dialed down to make yeah. sure he was lucid to, to yeah. sign the to, to agree to the procedure and uh, the 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 other thing in this is that is that the the bastard Catholic hospital makes it extremely difficult for people in the hospital to get access to the necessary people to sign the documents and make the decision. So um, they 
they enforce a policy that people have to sign the consent form outside of the hospital property. Mm. So, So you might say, oh, I've had enough of this. I need a transfer. I'm going to be signing, you know literally signing my life away because I'm exactly. in so much agony. They'll say, no, nope, can't do that paperwork here. Who's this Who's this person walking through the door? This Not allowed in. This, this lawyer or doctor or whatever who's getting you to sign this consent form is not allowed in. So they've got situations where one woman who does a fair bit of it has to... Um, uh, yes, I read that. She, she had to pretend she, that she was visiting flat, visiting. Um, she, uh, she, she makes to get around the hospital's ban on patients even being assessed. There, she said she makes flower visit masquerading as a friend bringing a bouquet. She has to sneak into the hospital to get yeah. the paperwork done. Yeah, and I have the gall to say that religions provide us with moral guidance. Hmm. So they, that's where not we're, much moral guidance there, is there? That's where we're heading on um, on that on that issue. This next piece features the vasectomy story, which is one of my favourites. Advocates of same-sex marriage argue this norm has already changed. They point out that many children do not live in a home headed by both a mother and father, and that adopted children are not reared by their biological parents. But these are exceptions to the norm and are almost always unintended consequences at the time the child is conceived. Well, you probably find there's a fair few exceptions to the norm. I mean, there's studies being done showing a lot of kids are not um, are not actually related to their dad biologically. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Comes as a bit of a surprise for people. Did I ever tell you the story about... Um, I think it was a doctor friend of mine was fishing with another doctor who was... A guy who did a lot of vasectomies. Did I tell you that story? No. This is a true no, story. Tell me that story. Yeah. And um, the, uh, the the vasectomy doctor was telling of a, a dilemma he had, where a guy had come into him and said, uh, "You know, I need a vasectomy." And the doctor said, "Sure. Um, why is that?" And he said, "Well, I've got five kids. I reckon that's enough, and I'm, you know, want to stop having a family." And the guy said, "That's the perfect answer. No worries." Anyway, did the procedure, and as he was doing the procedure, he saw that the, um, uh, you know, the way the guy's biology was, that it was impossible for him to father a child. Oh, God, no. <laughs> so, oh. And so, he, after the operation, was like, <laughs> well, it's all done, all good, good luck, and it sort of... He knew that this guy did not father any of his five children. children. And as a doctor, what do you do? Is your patient, are you obliged to say... I don't know, yeah, I I don't know. We just found some interesting stuff when we were in there. Um, We'd have to ask Deep Throat about that, yeah. Yeah, we'll ask Deep Throat, we're seeing him on Sunday, so... Yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> so I reckon, uh, Margaret Somerville, you'd find it happens uh, more often than you'd like often to think, you think yes, that exactly. uh, children are not in fact raised by their biological dads. It wouldn't be a podcast lately without uh, a quick mention of Pope Francis. 
Um, <laughs> oh, the Pope Francis effect. <laughs> mm. uh, Pope Francis effect has been credited with encouraging a resurgence in faith among rank and file Catholics, but it has also had a more unexpected consequence. A boom in the demand for exorcisms. Uh, the Argentinian pontiffs fire and brimstone language and frequent references to the devil have helped propel belief in Beelzebub back into the mainstream of the Catholic Church where it was once an embarrassment. So this Pope is, in his statements, regularly talking about Satan, the devil, mm. the evilness of it. And the article is basically making the point that the Catholic Church all over the world... It's got a sudden resurgence in, in exorcisms and exorcists and they're a growing uh, force within the Catholic Church, unbelievably, which is of concern to me considering I'm looking to found a chapter of the Satanic Temple. <laughs> well, actually, it's not a concern because it would be fantastic. Imagine the press releases you could say. Will the Pope please stop criticising the devil? I mean, we haven't... Yeah. <laughs> We happen to really like the devil, and it's 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 discriminatory, or it's you know it's not yeah. you know you don't you shouldn't be picking on other people's religions. So yeah, exactly. Um, oh, there's fun to be had there. Uh, you know, send off my email as I said last week. Haven't heard back from the Satanic Temple. It's Still haven't heard back from. No, you. I'll have to send a follow up. But if you're out there, Satanic Temple, um, actually, dear listener, if you think it's a good idea, maybe you could shoot an email to the Satanic Temple saying that you've been listening to the Iron Fist for the last 65 episodes. He seems a decent <laughs> bloke. Uh, his heart's <laughs> in the right place as much as it could be for a potential Satanist and and that they should look for my email and and provide a positive response. So, um, dear listener... Yeah, yeah absolutely. Go for it, listeners. Yeah. Something you could do to help me out, a little bit of a reference would be would be good. Scott, I hadn't uh, mentioned this one to you before, but I quickly found... Well, I just stumbled across uh, gun ownership statistics. Did I send you that one? You did send it to me, yeah. Just 3% of adults own half of America's guns. That is amazing. Mm. Like, we talk about the gun ownership problem in America, but, dear listener, 78% of Americans don't own any guns. 19% of Americans... um, own 50% and 3% own the other 50%. Like, that's amazing that it's so concentrated in the hands of so few. So, just to repeat that, 78% of Americans do not own a single gun. 19% of Americans own 50% of the total guns and 3% of Americans own the other 50%. There's people there with a lot of guns. Well, that's what I was thinking when I read that. I thought to myself, those 3%, they've got to have arsenals in their home. Yes. You know, they've got to be set up with military weapons and that sort of stuff. It's amazing that um, that you would have that number. You know, on average, 17 guns apiece. Oh. I mean, and even further down, it said that... Um, the researchers who conducted the study say that most gun owners cite a need for protection from other people as the primary reason to own guns. Okay, that's one firearm that you own mm. to protect yourself, not 17. You mm. know, that's the incredible thing that I found 
I just thought to myself, that just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Mm. Keen listeners to the podcast will remember the other statistic, which was that in California... Uh, there were more establishments selling guns than there were McDonald's stores. Yeah. And, and if you've ever been to California, you'll realise that that's, that's an amazing uh, proliferation of gun it stores is, yeah. because you, you can't walk anywhere without stumbling across a McDonald's. So, mm. yeah, so there you go. Last week, we hinted that um, uh, we were going to go on a bit of an excursion to a Hillsong performance. And, mm-hmm. Scott, you were a last-minute cancellation. but oh, I it was went. a last-minute cancellation, yes. Yeah. So I went with uh, the 12th man and with Deep Throat. And yep. um, fascinating, really fascinating. <laughs> so we, we went last Sunday to the 9.30 session of Hillsong uh, at Mount Cravat in Brisbane. And, first of all, massive car park full of cars, like... Lots of cars. Yeah. Uh, walk into the place. It's a big place. And at the door, a couple of guys greeted us, a couple of older guys. You know, yeah. how are you going? Shook our hands. Welcome. First time here. Blah, blah. Um, you know, welcome to the family sort of introduction. Uh, yeah. Then um, made a few jokes. It was all very friendly and welcoming. Inside, there were a number of little um, sort of, uh, espresso coffee machines running at different places. There was a little kitchen there doing sort of toasted sandwich stuff for free. You had to pay for your espresso. But um, then, uh, so we had a bit of a look around. There was a bookshop doing a roaring trade. Like, yeah. they were selling DVDs and music of Hillsong performances. And, you know, there was a crowd of 20 people lined up. And... I was trying to see the prices of the videos and there were no prices on anything. Like, people were just lining up and buying the stuff, presumably not even knowing how much it cost. They were just they were just spending their money. Yeah. Uh, in another separate building, a very large building, they had um, childcare facilities, so they had three different age groups of for different kids where you drop your kids off and you can then attend the service and they'll be looked after and... Um, entertained. And the kids and get indoctrinated in, at the same time. Do I they? don't. Well, I, I can't say that. It did seem to be a lot of jumping castles and blowing bubbles and various other activities that kids would enjoy. In mm. that area, I don't know that there was a lot of um, proselytizing going on, to be fair. Okay. But um, then uh, we went inside, massive auditorium. 12th man thought it would probably hold about 1,500 people, and I think there was about 1,100 in there. And mm-hmm. um, uh, about a seven-piece band, rock band playing, and six singers in front. Yeah. And, look, it was it was that evangelical Hillsong sort of songs that all of the words were subtitled on a big screen, so... The screen would show the faces of various singers and the a bit like karaoke, the words were there for people to sing along and yeah. lot, lots of people did. And yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, singers, um, all fresh-faced, wholesome, good-looking, um, <laughs> obligatory Asian, um, obligatory black guy, um, uh Evenly split, three girls, three guys. Um, even in the band, a couple of Asians, black guy. It was a real racial mix on stage. 
and also actually a real racial mix in the auditorium significant number of asian people uh polynesian um all sorts just you know based on skin color and and clothing or whatever quite a strong diversity of of ethnicities there mm-hmm. uh the program itself um lots of singing to kick off with like must have been 20 minutes of singing um by this rock band um really good drummer really good bass player i was i was sort of getting into the drums and the bass and um <laughs> but the words were just inane you know they were just jesus i love you and jesus you love me and you gave yourself up on the cross for me and and will you know the sun's shining and the birds are singing and jesus i love you and it just one inane line after another but that just didn't mm. matter people were busting out the lyrics um uh and then there was a bit of a um uh call for donations past the bucket round um uh, then there was the word where this guy read some scripture. How much did you put in that bucket? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't put any. I just passed the bucket on. The twelfth man was the twelfth man was very clever. He because on your seat as you sit down, there's a um, there's an envelope, a donation envelope that you can either write, you know, a credit card donation or you can put money in. And um, right. the twelfth man, he cleverly just put an empty envelope into the bucket. So. <laughs> So he knew what he was doing. Um, uh, then there was the word where the guy read from some scripture and gave a really strange parable um, uh, that that went on. But he was very smooth, I felt. Twelfth Man and um, and Deep Throat thought he was a bit sort of going through the motions, but I thought he was quite clever and did a really good job. And then at the end, some lady came on and... Um, she almost got a bit spiritual. She, at one point, said... Uh, she pointed to a couple in the third row and said, uh, this couple here in the third row, the man in the blue shirt and the lady in the white blouse, you are a couple, aren't you? And they, they said, yes. And she said, I just have this feeling. I just have this feeling that that you're looking for, for answers, but, but God has... Jesus has got them for you, and I have this feeling that great things are ahead for you, and... And whatever you're thinking about, just go ahead and do it, or something like that. It was kind of spiritual so fortune telling. She it? sort of yeah. crossed over into just she'd had this sense out of the whole crowd that these people needed her special attention, and um, lots of welcoming family stuff, and um, a bit more music in the end, and we all piled out. But I reckon, you know, as we walked out in the in the uh, in the car park, there were half a dozen volunteers. I mean, in the inside the auditorium, there was a dozen ushers. There was video people, audio people. Like there had to be eighty to a hundred volunteers there. Um, yeah. When you combine and add them all up, it was a phenomenal business and enterprise of people. So, yeah. So, dear listener. I found it quite interesting and as an excursion for a secularist or an atheist just to see what's going on in the world with and the and the delusion that people were willing to subject themselves to like uh, 
yeah, it was a very interesting exercise. And uh, if there's a Hillsong in your area, go along one Sunday and have a look. But <laughs> such a clever operation, such a big operation. Like, oh, we are such minnows in the scheme of things, of influencing things. But um, one thing I do remember was uh, uh, they were saying... Oh, don't forget, um, everyone, Wednesday night is men's night. We've got a special men's night function. Pastor Brian Houston will be coming along. Um, ladies, if your man comes to this night, he's going he's gonna to worship Jesus more and he's going to worship you more. And who doesn't want that, hey? Hey, who doesn't want that? And all the ladies in the audience are going, Yeah, I want my man to worship Jesus more. I want my man to worship me more. And, uh, and um, so, yeah, so then a guy came on and said, guys, it's going to be great on Wednesday night. Like, it's a men's only night. It's a men's night with Pastor Houston. It's going to be great. I can't tell you too much. I'll give you a little bit of a drip feed. You know, just one thing to sort of get you going. There's going to be a boxing ring. <laughs> We're going to have some boxes. There's going to be a fight with some boxes. There's going to be bacon. There's going to be there's going to be chicken wings with hot sauce, and it's not going to be good for your arteries. He joked, but you're going to love it. Like, and, and we're going to worship Jesus, and we're going to be better men. So that's Wednesday night uh, tomorrow night, Scott. <laughs> if no, I don't think I can make it. <laughs> oh, okay. It's just around the corner from you. You're, you live perilously close to that place. I, I do live perilously close to it, but no, I don't think I can make yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so there you go. That was our hill. It was song amazing, experience. though, wasn't it? I mean, very eye-opening, and and the numbers of people and the money involved and the production and yeah, very very enlightening. So, well, what I found incredible from that mm. story was the mm. bookshop. Mm. He said there were just people lined up out the front. To go in there, it, and hmm. you know they must be making a fortune out of it. Mm. It could be because they've just released a new song, and they announced in the uh, in the thing that that song is uh, number three on iTunes in Australia, and number one iTunes in America, or vice versa. Actually, maybe number one in Australia or number three in America on iTunes, like. Bloody Goodness hell. sake, yeah. So they had a new song out, so that might have been why the bookshop or the, the, the sort of gift shop was particularly busy. But yeah, man, oh man, pe- that's really, yeah, they were just selling bucket loads. So I, I, I said to Deep Throat, I can't think of a business on a Sunday morning where you've got no price tags and you've got people piled out the door, yeah, trying to get in to buy. It was phenomenal. So, mm. so there you go, uh, dear listener. Rock along to a Hillsong event and just have a look at what we're up against. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, got a chance during all that to have a bit more of a conversation with Deep Throat, and he was telling me about his episode with you with David Van Gend at that. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and how yeah. Uh, he actually got hold of the microphone during that. Yeah, and there was a bit of he a Q and A. And uh, he actually started asking some pointed questions. And Mm. David Van Gend had given this metaphor of of the non-religious forces being like like rats in a chicken coop. Yeah, um, exactly. And 
Deep Throat said, well, that's not a very nice description, you know, that's <laughs> painting a pretty ugly picture. And um, and they tried to get the microphone away from, from Deep Throat, but he, but he yeah. hung on to it. And, and figured while he had the microphone, they couldn't shout above him. So the guy That's true. But David Van Gen, when he went to ask another follow-up question, David yeah. Van Gen said to him, no, no, I've already answered your question, so move on. Right. Okay. <laughs> so anyway... Deep Throat uh, just enlightened me a bit more about how he, he had hold of the microphone and he, he wouldn't let it go for a while. So uh, No, he wouldn't let it go for a while, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, Wendy Francis came up to him to take it off him. Yes. And he said, no, I've got another question. And yeah. so she said, oh, okay, that's fine. So, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Good exactly. on you, Deep Throat. Now, um, yes, well done, Deep Throat. Yep. <laughs> it's an article that you could read in the Sociology of Sport. Here's the abstract of, of this article and see if you want to read this one. <laughs> Sports sociology has, has provided a significant body of critical research on gender and social inequality within outdoor sport. Less attention is given to how the social construction of sport landscapes shapes gender power relations. This article examines how skiing landscapes are constructed as masculinised spaces. The mountainous sublime is a site for performing athletic, risk-seeking masculinity. The backcountry and advanced terrain at ski resorts also appear as masculinised places. By contrast, less risky areas of the skiing landscape may be interpreted as gender-neutral or feminised space. Through skiing, participants construct the meaning of gender and place, privileging masculinised versions of the sport. We won't be reading. <laughs> I won't oh. be reading that. No. no. Uh, now, Scott, from time to time, uh, you know you're unavailable, and uh, we get you know the twelfth man in, and I've got a mate yeah. of mine who I've thought at different times might be a suitable stand-in if, if we need somebody at some stage. His name's Tony. Yeah. And yeah. He, if he makes it onto the program, dear listener, he'll be referred to as right-wing Tony because he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's got a very right-wing view of, of different things. And uh, now, dear listener, language warning coming up. You know, if, you've got, if you're listening to this in the car and you've got kitties or whatever, you, know, you might want to turn it off and come back to us later because I'm going to use a swear word coming up, okay? So, so fair warning there. Okay, so right-wing Tony joked that, um, that he was going to start a political party and he was going to, yeah. call, it, he was going to call it FIFO, F-I-F-O, yeah. which, was, which was going to stand for... Fit in or fuck off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I just joked and we all laughed and his wife laughed and he said, no, no, I'm serious, you know, it'll be, you know, it'll be popular and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, said, you know. Anyway, it was a bit of a standing joke, right-wing Tony and the political party FIFO that he's going he's gonna to start up. Well, it's bugger me dead. Up. <laughs> <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> Almost. There is a new political party, dear listener. Which is called Love Australia or Leave. Very similar to FIFO. And the, uh, the logo of Love Australia or Leave is an outline of Australia with the, words, with the word full printed within the logo. And uh, they're basically saying that uh, 
No more immigration. Australia is full for the time being. Thank you very much. And that's that's the basis of the party there, Scott, it seems to me. Well, yeah. that's what it, that's what I got out of it when I read it. It just yeah. seemed that they were completely anti-immigration. You know, they claim that they've got members who are from migrant backgrounds and that sort of stuff, but mm. they're saying that right now it's full. Mm. Yep. Which... You know, there's all sorts of complicated, long and boring arguments to say that they're wrong, which I'm sure you don't want me to go into, but they are wrong. Um, You know, the... We can take plenty more people just provided they don't destroy our society in the process. Exactly, yeah, Yeah. exactly, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's that's where it's, you know, fit in or fuck off. Mm. You know, that that probably makes sense. But um, it is... Where was it? Um, you know, there, there, there were submissions uh, in the opposition to it saying that, you know, it was obscene and that sort of stuff, the depiction of Australia stating it's not full, nor will it be full in the future. The party responded by stating the logo outlined the love of Australia or leave party hardline in immigration policy. The word full represents that we are economically full. Yeah. We need to secure our own future before we can assist our global neighbours. We have over 100,000 homeless people sleeping on our streets and high rates of unemployment. You know, it's this bloody zombie argument that just won't die. Mm. You know, they are convinced that uh, immigration leads to higher levels of unemployment and they're wrong, you know. No, we've got, we've got room for more. It's just people who have got to... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. Tony. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. I've had a little bit to do with different backpackers and stuff in recent times. Met a lovely French couple, and uh, they had no trouble getting work as they backpacked around Australia. And it was because they were doing work that Australians just didn't want to do, like exactly picking yeah. fruit or doing all sorts of weird things that they ended up doing. That uh, yeah, so there were jobs out there, um, and and I think the fruit picking industry, for example, would just collapse if we didn't have overseas workers coming in to do it yeah exactly yeah mm. i mean like you, well you, you can see the um argument over the, the argument for it with the backpackers tax mm. you know that that was um you had george christensen and those sorts of people standing up for you know not getting rid of the tax break entirely yeah you know are we, so, are we agreeing with George Christensen on something? I think. Uh, yeah, I, I did find myself feeling uncomfortable yeah. doing it, but yes, yeah. I was just—I was agreeing with him. There, yeah. there you go. Just <laughs> okay, Scott. We. Um, I love it when a useful John Menadju article comes up, and we've got one again this week. Uh, this one by a person called Kieran Tapsell. And it's discussing three submissions that were put by law professors to the Royal Commission into, into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. Yeah, and uh, it is frightening what these three so-called law professors said uh, in their submissions to the Royal Commission. And first up, well... We've got a Michael Quinlan and a Keith Thompson, both from Notre Dame University. And, Scott, last week I said to you, what, what's this Notre Dame? Like, where is it? And um, I did a quick Google before, and it's a Catholic university. <laughs> <laughs> well, are we really surprised? <laughs> no. 
No. Because that ethicist, that bioethicist, I think, was from Notre Dame from last week. Yeah. With a crazy yeah, notion. Yeah. So, mm. uh, so we've got... Um, yes, so Notre Dame Uni, dear listener, a Catholic university, uh, Michael Quinlan and Keith Thompson, and we had Frank Brennan from the Australian Catholic University, ACU, yet another Catholic university. Um, they... Um, between them, they criticised any attempt by the Royal Commission to discuss the doctrines and canon law of the Catholic Church on the grounds that such a discussion would breach religious liberty and the separation of church and state. So, you and I, dear listener, looking at the Royal Commission would be thinking that there's something wrong with the institutions themselves here that is causing this unbelievable number of of child abuse cases and these three guys are saying well don't look at the doctrine of the church like don't look at um, celibacy. celibacy laws for example mm. you can't do that so Quinlan states that freedom of religion excludes assessment by the state of the legitimacy of religious beliefs or the ways in which they expressed. He says it would be futile criticising Catholic doctrine, canon law, clericalism and celibacy because they are deeply scriptural and one cannot be changed without affecting the other. So, Royal Commission hands off on those issues as far as he's concerned. He doesn't explain how canon law's provisions for dealing with sexual abuse are deeply scriptural, by the way. Mm. Quinlan uh, also argues celibacy is not a factor in child sexual abuse. He cites various studies in support. He asks the Commission to make a finding that there is no such connection. But if the Commission took a different view, he believes that religious freedom ought to mitigate against recommendations of change to celibacy requirements it's disgusting i mean common sense tells you you get a bunch of men and tell them that they can't have sex with anyone mm-hmm. and then you put them around a bunch of little kids mm-hmm. and surprise surprise they yeah. end up abusing those kids sexually and this Professor Quinlan has the gall to say to the Commission he wants a finding that there is no such connection and if there is then don't make any uh, recommendations because that would be a contravening religious freedom yeah I know it's I mean I think this is Quinlan's words here Royal Commissions have no power to change any rules private, state or national or international that, they can only make recommendations which that, can be ignored and often are That's, that's the know. commentator so Kieran Tapsell says Royal Commissions have no power to change any rules they can just make okay. recommendations anyway so hmm. what is he worried about? They can't actually change any exactly. rules they can just make exactly. recommendations yeah. yeah that was the that was the part that I thought that his whole argument fell apart on when, when I read that I thought to myself mm. hang on a minute they, they can't make any rule changes they can simply recommend mm. um, yeah. um, Professor Thompson um, makes some comments Professor 
like Brennan, Frank Brennan is on various things. He gets a seat at Q and A and commentates a lot. Mm. But uh, you know, you often think of him as being because I think he's a Jesuit. Um, he criticised the commission for making a finding in the Near Coal case that various church figures in Rockhampton lacked compassion towards the victims. He says it stepped into what he calls the holy ground of religious belief. In 1994, church protocol required the the diocese to adopt pastoral action which is compassionate in dealing with victims. The commission found that in many instances the church did not comply with its own protocol in that its response was not compassionate. So that's clearly a role for the commission. So so Frank Brennan says, well, the commission should never have said that the church figures were not compassionate. But the commission has looked at the protocol of the church which says you should be compassionate and has made a finding of fact that they weren't compassionate. That's what legal bodies do, judges and courts and whatever, all the time. Mm. Make assessments as to whether people have complied with rules and regulations. So the commission came out and said, well, they didn't comply with the church's own regulations. That's when someone like Frank Brennan... Uh, it's, it's poisonous, the views of these people. Um, sticking it to the Commission at this stage, telling them what they can and cannot say about religion, if they, if they truly had moral fibre, if they truly cared about the victims and what has gone on, they would just sit back cooperate with the Commission and let the Commission make its findings. The fact that they're sending in submissions telling the Commission what to do and what not to do and to to restrict the Commission shows they don't have a moral bone in their body or a care about the victims. Their care is about the church. Like, you know, the Commission is properly conducted. It's not some kangaroo court let them do their job and let's see where things lie at the end of it. But to preempt all that and to and to hamstring hamstring the commission at this stage, how can they morally say that they've got the interests of the victims at heart and the best interests of our society? They don't, they're just their their religion comes first and society mm-hmm. and victims a long second behind. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you've said there. You know, there's there's no argument whatsoever. These guys are clearly just going into bat for the Catholic Church and they obviously don't care mm. what, what the victims think. You they'll, know? S- they'll say they care, but their actions of trying to, to limit the commission in advance uh, just speak much louder than... Than their words. So, yeah, exactly. Great article, this one, um, from uh, John Menadue's blog. Um, at the end it says, uh, talking about Ireland, um, the Murphy Commission report in Ireland found that the structure and rules of the Catholic Church contributed to the cover-up in the Dublin Archdiocese. In response to that report, Pope Benedict, in his 2010 pastoral letter, to the people of Ireland, ignored that finding and blamed the bishops for the cover-up. 
there could not have been a better example of the exercise of religious liberty by the Supreme Pontiff in the face of criticism by a commission of inquiry. That's what will happen again in Australia. The commission's going to come out and say that there are institutional problems with these churches and the Pope will just blame the players involved and say there's nothing wrong with the institution. And so will Michael Quinlan, Keith Thompson and Frank Brennan as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, depressing because it's true. Mm. Mm. Scott, uh, completely different subject. Um, the hijab. Yes. We, you know, the argument for the hijab is, is that it's supposed it's, to keep women safe and all that sort of stuff from men who can't it, control themselves. That's right, and it's and yeah. it's it's for modesty purposes. So it's mm. for a woman to exhibit her modesty. She's not out there exhibiting herself to men. It's also to help men who are just. Uh, god-awful creatures who've got nothing else on their minds except leering at women to no longer leer at them to take away their sexuality so that the temptation is not there. That's a big Mm. part of wearing the hijab is that men can't ogle women uh, and takes that temptation away. Well, this article by the uh, Guardian's Tehran Bureau correspondent basically says that her experience and the experience of other ladies in Iran who are wearing either the shador or hijabs or very conservative clothing is that as they walk the streets of Iran, they Mm -hmm. are constantly ogled. It's not wolf whistling, but it's a disgusting sort of licking of the tongues and smacking of the yeah, lips that is going on. I didn't quite understand exactly what was going on, but it sounded like they were kissing the air or something like yes, that. Yes, sort of licking their lips in an yeah. awful fashion. And it's a very interesting article saying that she's walking down perfectly normal streets in a bustling metropolis of Tehran, continually subjected to really overt ogling and noises and uh, um, you know, just disgusting behaviour by the menfolk Mm. there Um, so wearing the hijab is not achieving that objective at all and we know that wearing the hijab in Iran is mandatory Yes, for women, they they have to wear it yes it's, um, you know, I found out of the whole article the most interesting was Aisha a 23 year old chemistry student explains girls and boys are separated from primary school to the end of high school they never have a chance to interact and when they suddenly do they can't just make normal conversation it's like any interaction is implicitly on sexual territory and you know what she's hit the nail right on the head yep. you know I, I don't think there's any other explanation for it but if you if you keep guys and girls separated that's what happens yep. you know and even as, as adults, um, with the absence of bars, clubs or places to socialise, it's the public areas that are left. So you are just not safe from, from being uh, subjected to this as a woman uh, in a public space because yeah. that's the only place guys meet girls is out yeah. on the street. Um, 
as they stalk and harass them. So, you know, there's no other word for it except stalking, is there? Mm. Yeah, the, the descriptions of various stories. The description and, and the stories, they are really disturbing, aren't they? Mm. So like all these things, dear listener, there is a link to that one on the website. You can read it at your leisure and um, uh, another reason yet again against the hijab. Um, Just quickly, another article. um, uh, I think it's from a blog or something like that, a guy called Daniel Pipes. Um, He reckons he's compiled a list of about 150 incidents where... The fact that somebody wore a burqa or a niqab assisted in a crime being committed. And he, uh, he found this article saying that um, ISIS, the terrorist group, has actually um, released an order um, based on which no woman is allowed to be wearing the niqab or the burqa when entering the security and military centres of ISIS. The decision, according to the source, came after some fully veiled women killed a number of ISIS commanders and members in the past months. So, so ISIS, he makes it mandatory the wearing of either the burqa or the niqab. I had to ban it in certain places because women are tucking AK-47s into their clothing and, and shooting the shooting yeah, the hierarchy of ISIS good on the women for doing it as far as I'm concerned but still mm. and all it's uh, it is somewhat disturbing when you read it because it goes through you know it, the first irony the ISIS rulers require the burqa and then realising it was a perfect cover for it provides the attacks themselves but it has sensitive areas should attacks on them continue perhaps ISIS will have a will have to ban the burqa from all public places mm. You know, he, he goes he goes through it and he looks at the whole thing and he says that the niqab and the burqa mm-hmm. are fundamentally flawed as a garment. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's pretty hard to argue with that. So there you have it, dear listener. That's the end of our little uh, trip down memory lane. And I think I'll probably be doing it um, from time to time in future. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, don't forget... Give us some feedback on the website. Love some voicemails occasionally. And uh, emails are great. Help us out with the Federal Secular Index. And when uh, you're weary, yeah, just talk to us. It'd be great. It's nice to get some feedback. Okay, cheers. Bye. Wind and rain. You're drenched and drowning in a cat for hurricane. Call Donald. He'll be right on the green He'll see you in two weeks Like a brick thrown in troubled water He will weigh you down Like a brick thrown in troubled water he will weigh you down. So this is a big SOS for anybody out there. He will give himself a big A+. Plus. He'll say enough about me. What do you think about me? 
said S-O-S But he was busy saying S-O-B So you were S-O-L Like a brick thrown in troubled water He will put you down like a brick thrown in troubled water. He will watch you drown. Now, what is your what is your death count as of this moment? Seventeen. You're an island surrounded by water, big water, ocean water. You've got a nasty mayor. You've thrown our budget out of whack. You should be proud. More people haven't died. And he'll forgive your debt. No, he won't. Yes, he will. No, he won't. Yes, he will. No, he will. Like a brick thrown in troubled water. He will throw you towels like a brick thrown in troubled water. He'll throw paper towels. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.